Des Mackinoff sat down for a one-on-one interview in February 1994. I'm Hal Prince, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage, produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. I'm glad you all came out this afternoon and am pleased to have as our guest Des. Um, welcome. Thank you. Um, I guess I'd like to start off by starting at the beginning of your career as a director. What led you into directing as a career? And uh, if you can mention any people that were particularly influential. influential. And that I can blame? Yes, for... exactly. <laughs> this is really disconcerting, this... this uh... I wonder, do we really, or we need these for taping, do we? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to drool in it and put it out of commission. <laughs> um, I think like a lot of directors, I, I basically backed into the profession. Uh, I think this is uh, true of many stage directors. It, it was not necessarily something I expected to do. Uh, I, w- I grew up in Canada, and... My main ambition was uh, really to be a a playwright, and I also composed music. And uh, I guess I was first, I first kind of worked in Toronto as a composer. And uh, I also studied acting at uh, theater school, but always with the idea of becoming a a writer and a composer. And this was in the the early 1970s. And... uh, Basically, the Toronto theater scene was was born more or less, uh, I mean, at least from my perspective, overnight. Uh, after Expo '67, the the by the uh, you know the uh, Canadian Centennial, there was a very strong nationalist movement in Canada, and Toronto essentially became the the, the capital of of the uh, theater capital capital for English speaking uh, Canada. Uh, there was a reaction very much against the English theater. Uh, it was considered that, you know, if you were Canadian, it was unlikely that you were going to uh, get to direct or play a leadership role at Stratford, Canada, for example. So in response to that, there was a, a nationalist theater scene was created. If you were a writer or a composer, like, like I was a, in, in the theater scene, and if you had any leadership skills whatsoever, if you could string a sentence together, you were essentially recruited to play some kind of leadership role. It was more or less understood that if if some other uh, director was uh, writer was willing to take on your play as a director, that at some point in the future you would kind of return the, the favor. I, I'm 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 exaggerating a little bit, but not much. Um, there was it, it was very common because it was a relatively small theater scene. It was it was relatively common for people to to to. Uh, you know, change roles and switch hats and so on, which is, of course, one of the advantages, you know, of working, it seems to me, in the theater in general, you know, that there, there tends to be more fluidity. No one's quite so shocked, you know, if you're an, an actor, if you decide to direct or if you write a play and so on. And that was the case there. So I can't say that I studied directing formally. And in fact, at that, those, at that time, there were, there were, I think, relatively few programs for directors. Uh, perhaps, I think Yale, obviously, was... Uh, and here was was uh, teaching directing. There may have been a couple of programs in Canada, but I'm I'm not I'm not sure that there were any at all. Possibly York University. I don't believe the National Theatre School in Canada had any programs. 
So essentially, it was it was a, a combination of observing other directors. As a writer, you work closely with with directors, um, and I worked with a number of the leading directors in Toronto over the years I was uh, starting out as a writer. And I think it was also a, a, a certain amount of on-the-job training. Um, when I arrived in New York, I was 23, and uh, I was about to have my 24th birthday. And at that time, it was, well, I think it's still probably relatively unusual for someone to have, uh, you know, a considerable amount of experience at that age. And But the Toronto theater scene really was was very, was run by young people. The grandfather of the theater scene, of that theater scene, was the uh, originator of a theater called the uh, Theater Pass Marai in Toronto. And he, his name was Jim Gerard, is Jim Gerard. And I think Jim was probably 30 or 31, and he was the grandfather of the scene. So I wasn't remarkable by any means there. It was very common. But in New York, that was unusual. And because of that, um, I think people, I got, uh, my foot in a few doors and uh, got some recommendations uh, and ended up directing at the, the what was then the Chelsea Theater Center mm -hmm. at the Brooklyn Academy of Music doing a Stanislav Witkiewicz play uh, when I was 24. And I think it was largely based on, you know, my uh, experience as a writer and a composer and a sort of a playmaker or whatever. And if you want names, uh, if I have to blame people, in those days it would be really all of the culprits in the Toronto theater scene, you know, uh, uh, and they won't mean much to you, to you folks, I wouldn't imagine, but a guy named Paul Thompson was extremely uh, supportive, a, a director named Paul Bettis, Martin Kinch, all of the people that ran that theater scene. And then a, 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 the late John Hirsch, who you may have heard of, who was a brilliant director and great uh, conversationalist, among, amongst other things, Rams, intellectual, Rams. right, uh, artistic director of Stratford, Canada, uh, Ran the, was the artistic director in Seattle for a while, directed here at Lincoln Center, won an OB for directing Hepcott Williams' ACDC at the Chelsea Theater Center. He was the, I was writing for television at that time too, and he was the executive, he was the actual, the head of CBC Drama, which is the national Canadian broadcasting corporation. And uh, I'd written a script called Kids uh, for an anthology program that, that they had, a half hour program. <clears throat> And uh, he loved the script. I'd always heard that he really loved the script, that it was his favorite script from this particular series. And the director uh, really made a terrible mess of it. This would be the writer's point of view. And mercifully, he, when he saw the, the dailies from this, he, he, he got, called my agent and basically said, you know, I don't think that you know, the director's done a very good job in this. Does Des want me to nip it in the bud? And I said, absolutely. You know, please kill this project. And um, so I happened to meet him the day I was coming to New York on a Canada Council grant. Uh, Canada Council is you know, where they dole out money, in some cases, for individuals for study programs and so on, kind of like the National Endowment's supposed to function. And uh, <laughs> so I happened, I was going to spend uh, the summer in New York on this Canada Council grant, and I happened to run into John Hirsch. Uh, I was working on a couple of other project for, projects for CBC, and I went into get the scripts and, you know, get all the notes or whatever bump I had stored at CBC. And I ran into him. We actually met for the first time. This is the day I'm moving to New York. And he immediately, you know, I don't, if, you, if you knew him, he was a very animated guy. And while he wasn't known as a kind of mentor type, uh, for whatever reason, he, he took a, a, an interest um, uh, in me. And 
and immediately started, you know, he's like a big bird, always scratching all over the place, and sat me down and said, you know, you're going to New York, these are the people you've got to see. And uh, by the time I got to New York, he'd called Bob Calfin at the Chelsea Theater Center and said, you've got to meet this kid, and so on. And, and he was talking as a composer and as a writer. And because of that call, um, uh, I actually, it, that kind of paved the way to my, my first gig, because Hirsch had a lot of clout at this particular theater. So I owed him a great deal. And to, to bookend this story, he died uh, in 89, the summer of 89. And he'd, uh, he lived the story of the painted bird, uh, traveling in, through surviving the war in, in uh, uh, Eastern Europe. A terrible, terrible time. Lost his entire family in concentration camps. And I, I knew that he would, I just heard that he was ill. And I, call, I was in Budapest, actually, <clears throat> directing. And uh, I, I called him from Budapest and said, I'm in your hometown. And he's always good this way, you know, tell me who I should see. And he immediately rattled off a huge lesson. So I was able to bring him paprika back from his native Budapest and uh, spent uh, a fabulous five hours, this is just a few weeks before he died, <clears throat> talking to him about, you know, life, his life, art, my life, and so on. And um, he, he was, I think, fairly determined that at one point I was going to run Stratford, Canada, and at this point, I really made a decision that I wanted to move away from being an artistic director back toward being a, a director. <laughs> and uh, he uh, and I was he and I, I, finally he was asking me what I was planning to do next, and I very sheepishly mentioned that I wanted to direct film, thinking I would get you know a lecture about this. And he did, of course, quite the opposite. Immediately got on the telephone as he'd done all those years before and called a, a, a friend of his, a producer in Toronto. Uh, and this project, that th this has led to hopefully what will become my first feature film. So here is Hirsch after all of these years, now quite dead, reaching out of the grave to uh, you know, match me with uh, somebody else. So I, I, would, I, would, I would say Hirsch is largely responsible for my misfortunes as a director. How about Joe Papp, once you got here, and how did you establish your relationship with Joe in the public theater? I actually, um, he was obviously very important to a person in my life uh, as well. I actually submitted, I wrote a play called Leave It to Beaver is Dead when I was uh, still uh, uh, in theater school. <clears throat> Catchy title, huh? Uh, and uh, so uh, anyway, I submitted this to the New York Shakespeare Festival on the recommendation of an actor named Jeff Weiss. Do you know who Jeff Weiss is? Uh, Jeff, at that, he was from the Cafe Chino days, was, he's an off-Broadway off legend, I think is the way to put it. And uh, he used to run this theater on 10th Street called El Coyote. I don't know, did anyone ever go to El Coyote or by any chance? Great, okay. Well, El Coyote was this wonderful theater where, uh, where basically it's, it seated 10 people, or maybe 12. And they would do all kinds of work, often an assortment of plays performed more or less simultaneously by four or five very energetic, underpaid uh, actors. And it was, it was uh, the, generally paced at this kind of hysterical fever pitch uh, with Jeff singing and performing. And this play that comes to mind was called Two Dykes Slash Coming Attractions, which was a series of projects that they planned to do over the next you know, decade or something. And um, I thought, this is the theater where Leave it to Beaver's Dead should be performed. Met with Jeff. He bought me dinner 
which I couldn't afford to, to eat in restaurants in those days at all. And uh, even though he didn't get along at all with, with Joe, he said, this play's got to be performed by Joe Papp. And he used to spoof Joe. I don't know if you remember, in, in his shows at that time, he would play Joe Papp with a cigar. And it would always be on the phone to some hapless playwright, you know, uh, and you know, kind of robbing them blind or whatever. And so I'd actually seen his portrayal of Joe Papp in, in one of these plays and was kind of, kind of taken aback when he recommended that, that I take my play over to see him. Uh, but uh, Jeff's recommendation uh, meant a great deal at the New York Shakespeare Festival. It was the play development department at that point. The new play program was being run by Ed Bowens. And uh, Ed uh, actually turned it over to Lynn Holston and uh, Gail Merrifield, who were running the play development program. And so I actually met Joe as a writer. And this was actually my great, uh, this is my, my good fortune, as it turns out. Because Joe, I think, had far more respect and was far kinder to writers than he was to directors. So my first experience with Joe was as a writer. And because of that, I think um, he was very gentle and supportive with me. You know, he's very nurturing with writers. And not always so with directors. But I think he always thought of me a little bit as a writer. And, and uh, uh, I must say, I, I owe him a great deal, too, because I... I the contrast between John and Joe would be uh, when, when John took over Stratford, Canada, I had directed in my early years, you know, the Bacchae and Dr. Faustus and a couple of projects like that, but very in a very primitive way. When I, when I did Dr. Faustus, I basically raped the text, I think would be a way, one way of putting it. <clears throat> it was very much, it was like, you know, director nine, playwright one, you know, um, in terms of the score. And uh, so... Um, but, and when John took over Stratford, Canada, he asked me to come and direct Shakespeare. And I said, well, you know, and he wanted me to work on the third stage kind of thing. And, and I said, I've never directed Shakespeare. And he said, well, you know, you'll start slow, you'll start here, and you know, it'll do a workshop, you work with a young company, and after a couple of seasons. And uh, Joe, the year later, asked me to do the same thing. I said, Joe, I've never directed Shakespeare. And Joe's response was, so what? Everybody who's, who directs Shakespeare at one time or another had never done it, you know? And here's, here's what play do you want to do? And here's the Delacorte, and go ahead. And um, the, he, was, he was a very, uh, very courageous. Uh, uh, he really knew how to push people into uh, you know, to projects to really to stretch them. So. What, when did you make the, the change, a career change again from being an independent director to an artistic director? And what was that process like? It was, it was actually kind of reluctant. Uh, the, we, we all worked at the Chelsea Theater Center. I became uh, associate artistic director and dramaturg. Uh, the NISCA at that point had a program to encourage dramaturgs where they would actually uh, uh, pay your salary. I think it was, it was actually, for that, at that time, it was like, it's still not bad money. It was remarkable money at that time. I think it was $300 a week or something. You know? So really the first really kind of like major paying job I'd ever had. And so I became dramaturg <clears throat> at the Chelsea Theater Center. And uh, then the, the theater uh, basically broke up and moved in a couple of different directions. And I ended up staying with uh, a group of people, you know, Ed, uh, Ed Strong, Sherman Warner, and, and Michael David, who remain my good friends. And we started this company called Dodger Theater, basically, because we decided to stay in Brooklyn. And I think we'd had such bad experiences with the whole title of artistic director 
that we decided no one would have that title. And we all called ourselves associate director, which meant absolutely nothing, frankly. But it sounded good, and it, it sounded kind of, it was, it was, I, I, it was actually a, uh, there used to be a joke, you know, how many, how many Dodgers does it take to turn in a light, uh, screw in a light bulb? And the answer was, I don't know, what do you think? Which would, tells you a lot about the way we used to conduct our artistic policy. But basically, because I was the only one who directed actors, one of the, and everything was done somewhat facetiously, if there was a job that really screamed for an artistic director, they would basically say, well, I guess that should be Des. Maybe, maybe reluctantly or maybe... Uh, uh, or maybe if it was a job they didn't really feel like doing. Uh, and so I got, basically, I think it was always understood that on some level, you know, I was probably more comfortable doing the artistic director work than, than they, they might have been. Um, and so I, 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 I played that role at the Dodgers while we were together. And it was a real hand-to-mouth kind of operation. We tried to plug into other institutions. We worked out of the Brooklyn Academy of Music for a couple of seasons. We worked out of the New York Shakespeare Festival for a couple of seasons, using you know their accounting department and their legal department and so on, and, and plugging into their production department in a way to be efficient. You know, in those times, uh, of course, uh, funding was shrinking. We were trying to find an efficient way to produce. Yeah. And uh, then after I did this, uh, I did this play called The Death of Von Richthofen at mm -hmm. uh, the New York Shakespeare Festival, which I also wrote and composed, made the perhaps mistake of directing it as well, and almost killed myself trying to get this thing on. Uh, and at the end of that, I get this call from these people in La Jolla uh, saying, would you come out and, and look at our theater? And it was uh, Arthur Bartow, who some of you might know, uh, who was at, at TCG at the time. He basically... At NYU now. At NYU now, right. He'd been basically uh, he'd been trying to get me to go to various places in the country at various times. He was artist services at TCG. And, and I'd always had to say no. And I thought, well, two things. One is I really owe Arthur, you know, I, I should say yes sometime just to be polite. And second of all, I could really use a trip to California because I'm fried. <laughs> and this would be great. I'll go out and I'll look at palm trees. I, the idea of palm trees in theater seemed totally incongruous to me to begin with. So I was sort of fascinated with, with uh, the, what seemed to me like a complete contradiction. And uh, so I went out there. And, and uh, first of all, we'd had a devil of a time mounting Richthofen on the stage of the Newman at the public. It was just a, you know, we it was involved flying and all kinds of other uh, jazz, and uh, it was exciting, but it was, you know, technically a very difficult, uh, ambitious show. And I walk into the stage they've just built in La Jolla, which is now called the Mandelweiss Theater, and here's, you know, an 80-foot fly loft and a completely trapped stage and orchestra pit and wing space and a 12,000 square feet of shop space, and I say to myself, you know, my God, if I only, you know, I, you know, I could have been you know, doing my play on this stage, it would have been a much better ride, and, and my focus would have been more on the work and less on the architecture. Mm -hmm. And then I met with the search committee, and basically they said, <clears throat> we want you to tell us your dreams as an artistic director. Tell us, tell us, describe your dream theater. And so I did. I described a, a, a theater that would have an eclectic artistic policy that wasn't about genre, but about excellence, and a theater that concentrated on content and not style. And I listed the, the directors and composers and designers I would like to see work there and, and um, you know, and went, you know, did this for a while. And I finished and they basically said, okay, fine, we'd like you to come and do that. 
and uh, we'll support you. And when somebody tells you that they'll fulfill your dreams, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's extremely tempting. And so while, in all, in all honesty, I, I really didn't covet the job of artistic director. I mean, it wasn't, I was very dubious. I remain dubious about, about, you know, I think theaters are run by teams of people. And they certainly involve vision. But it's really individual theater projects that involve vision, if you know what I mean. And whether those visions come from one person, generally it's been my experience that they come from different people. And, and that's certainly the case of the playoffs, I want to point out. Um, but uh, it that seemed like... That was 10 years ago. That was 10 years ago. But it seemed like an excuse to bring together people who I felt weren't getting maybe the... You know, who weren't getting the, the canvases to work on that they deserve to work on. Uh, one frustration I guess I had working in these larger institutions is that I, I came to believe that the work next door really affect the work in this, you know, in these multiple stages like the public and BAM, that the work next door really did affect the work I was doing in some way. You know, that in other words, if I can remember one time uh, at the public, one period, you know, Richard Foreman was doing Penguin 2K, uh, Joanne Acolytis was doing Dead End Kids, uh, and uh, we were doing this, uh, Mar this Mary Stewart, you know, this Wolfgang Hildesheimer black comedy, uh, Mary Stewart that I directed for the Dodgers. And I can remember thinking at the time, you know, one of the reasons this project's going so well is that the two projects that are running, you know, side by side with it, cheek to jowl with it, are really excellent projects. So, you know, there's, there's some kind of osmosis, you know, something's definitely, uh, you know, happening in the building. There's something good is going on. And I come, you know, when I, the, the opportunity at La Jolla was to have something to say about that. I, I guess I started to feel in opposite situations, you know, where you thought, my God, you know, the whole building is, you know, barking with dogs at the moment. It, that it, became, it, it became sort of tempting to have some influence on the other spaces. Mm -hmm. I must say the romance of that wore off in like a couple of seasons. <laughs> and then it became, you know, not hard bloody work. But to begin with, that was, that was really attractive. But you stuck it out for 10 years. Anyway. You know, I, I can say I stuck it out for 10 years. I, I must say, I think during a different times, I'm, I'm get, stepping down after this coming season. Mm -hmm. And I think, in, you know, if, I can, if times had been different in the 80s, I think I would have made this transition earlier. Uh, I, I've actually <clears throat> talked to the board in the past about this transition, I think starting back in 88 or 89. And, uh, but you know, a weird thing happens. There's this thing, you know, this kind of little prince syndrome with arts institutions that, that people love to have a human face uh, to attach to an institution. And if you're not careful, you start to actually believe the propaganda. I mean, it's really nothing more than, than that. You know, it's like convenient to, when, you know, in the community to have a, a couple of people and preferably an artist or an artistic type speaking for the institution. And, you know, it's, it becomes addictive. So even if it doesn't really represent, you know, what's going on, um, it, it's sometimes hard for, for institutions to shake um, free of that. So the tendency is to, you're, you're, you're generally better off making a transition when you're strong. And I guess I became convinced, you know, particularly by the people, um, you know, around the theater, board members and staff members and so on, who really believed in the place that, that I would be hurting the institution if I left. Um, 
you know, uh, and frankly, it, that, that didn't stop even when I said I really got to, you know, we got to change this. Uh, but I think now, now I guess I feel comfortable that this is a good moment for the transition to happen uh, from almost any angle. You know, you want to kind of look on, at it. Uh, I think it'll, I think the institution's ready for what I hope and expect will be, you know, younger leadership. And, uh, you know, the institution, the class has built a reputation basically on the work of people, in, for the most part, in their 30s, late 20s and 30s. And I think it's, it's, it's probably best that the artistic directors of, of that uh, age range, you know. I heard somebody say, you know, I, I knew for sure what was hip when I'm 30, when I was 30. And, you know, now that I'm 41, you know, I have to stop and make and think. And it's always good to have somebody who's 30 around to ask, just to be sure. <laughs> okay, I'm going to switch uh, gears a little bit and t let's talk a little bit about um, your process as a director. For example, having been a playwright, when you're working on a new play, um, do you find that you have greater sensitivity to the writer? And what's the process with working with the playwright on a new play? How did you characterize that? You know, um, it probably doesn't make me more sensitive to the writer. But uh, uh, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't know that that's true. I, 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 I don't believe in recipes. And, you know, working with, you know, uh, Bill Houtman is you know, profoundly different than working with, you know, Lee Blessing. I, I really don't believe that. I, I'm very even dubious about things like workshops for writers because I think there's this assumption that, that, that there's a particular process you can put a writer through that's going to benefit them. And it's been my personal experience that that's just not the case. You know, some writers... Um, are, are extremely hands-on, really need to participate in the, in the rehearsal process actively, need to hear uh, what actors have to say, uh, um, like a kind of public, uh, not public, but open sort of dramaturgical process. Other writers are, are much more, uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to put it in all positive ways, um, bookish, uh, prefer a one-on-one -on -one kind of relationship, are horrified, you know, find it very painful to hear the play, period, uh, don't like to participate nearly as much in the rehearsal process. And, and I don't believe that you can necessarily say that one process is better than another. I think it, it entirely depends on what makes the play better and, you know, what, you know, kind of benefits the, the playwright. So in general, I try to go into all, you know, projects, not just with new playwrights, but you know, looking for um, some kind of approach that's going to be effective in that particular case. Uh, my tendency is to prefer writers to be on the scene, in-house. I tend to like to start most rehearsal processes around a table, mm -hmm. uh, but not always, most of the time. I, I, because we're often working with actors who are new to us, I, I generally like to kind of create a a, a comfortable atmosphere, and uh, we, we again not always, but we tend to do dramaturgical work, research, and and provide the actors with that. I find it generally useful to, for the writer to have them plugged into that and sharing that and feel like they're a participant. Um, but you know, d different writers work in in a variety of ways, and the, the thing about art is there is no recipe for it, 
And you know, it seems to me that you have craft and technique to aid you, but in, at least to some extent, as a defense against the time that you can't come up with something better. Mm -hmm. You know, when when the divine spirit you know strikes you, then I don't. I'm not sure it has much to do with craft and technique. And I think when you kind of expect a recipe or a process to uh, lead you somewhere, somewhere, sometimes you can be denying um, other, uh, uh, maybe greater possibilities. Spontaneous things. Yeah, and, 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 you know, trying to forget what you think you know. Mm -hmm. uh, what you think you know can often really, you know, box you in. Um, this, you know, working on the last project I worked on, it's, it's hard to say who exactly the writer was. You know, it was, I mean, the theater, it's, it's, to me, it's much more about playmaking, too, you know, and, and sometimes that, and that generally involves somebody being responsible for the text. Which project? Tommy. But it's not always the case. I mean, there are times when we improvise material. There are times when, you know, Mump and Smoot, who we're going to have at the theater this coming summer, they're called Canadian Clowns of Horror, which I, re I really love this phrase, being from Canada, of course. Um, and they speak their entire plays in gibberish. You know, they're, they're, it's a language that they've totally invented. You know, who's the writer there? I guess they are, but, you know, it's gibberish after all. So. Well, <clears throat> Tommy and uh, Big River, they both had really strong design concepts. And we're just wondering how closely the designers were involved and how early they were involved in the process. And, and you, do you present them with a the concept? Do you talk about the, the play initially? Again, you know, I wish... I think every process, I, I know this sounds like I just said it, but, but it's, it's, every process really is different. And in the case of Tommy, you know, the story was being told visually from the get-go. It was really clear that we couldn't rely on the libretto. You know, it's not what, not, not what the libretto was doing. It was, after all, a concept album. Not, it wasn't really an opera. I mean, he used the term rock opera in a, you know, he was, it was, he was, I think the English phrase is taking the piss. You know, he's basically, you know, rock and roll means lovemaking, and there are, you know, cruder ways to put it. And he was having fun with the term uh, opera, uh, really, at the time. But, you know, it was really a song cycle. And we knew that it wasn't going to tell the story on it, tell a story on its own, that it was going to be, you know, it was going to provide thematic development. It was going to provide, I, I think, it seems to me, I, I think the lyrics are quite poetic was going to give us that, but it wasn't going to really do the nitty-gritty narrative work of storytelling. So, well, Who initiated the project, you or Pete? Um, I, neither of us, really. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of a long and convoluted, but, but we were kind of put together. Uh, you know, uh, I directed other things involving sort of British rock and roll royalty, like, you know, Ray Davies of the Kinks. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, for the longest time, the rights to Tommy weren't available, and somebody acquired them, and, you know, one thing led to another, and we ended up, you know, basically in the same room together talking about whether we wanted to do this, whether or not we wanted to do this. But, uh, so before the designers came in, there was a visual description of the piece, you know, that, in other words, that demanded a particular kind of stagecraft. It dem demanded that they would... Uh, achieve certain uh, stage pictures that would would basically develop a story visually, and we knew that we we expected that we needed projections uh, simply because we knew there were going to be you know 
30 or 40, 40 or 50 locations as opposed to the 15 you might normally you know, expect. And we had this uh, whole other you know, agenda and this whole other world to create, which was this musical dream that, that this traumatized uh, child goes on or uh, experiences. And uh, so by the time they were brought in, there was a f fairly strong demand on them. You know that it, what we knew that it was that that uh, that they were going to have to do a, a good deal of work. But you know the reverse of that is that John Arnone sat with me cooking up the production concept, the design concept for Tommy before there was a script. You know I, we worked from the old liner notes from the album, and I basically read him the descriptions that 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 I cooked up with Townsend. You know, uh, in England, you know the, the kind of production concept descriptions. And John, God bless him, sat there without a script. You know, we listened to the album and essentially, you know, helped me storyboard um, yeah, his work this incredible. this uh, this uh, musical. Uh, but you know, the the, this, the visual concept for the from the for the piece came directly from the writing. You know, the writing said an airfield. You know, these are the these are the images. A man falls from the sky in a parachute. People jump through the stage floor. You know, all of that was done before a design team existed. Mm. Um, on the other hand, the design team fed, you know, back into the writing of the piece directly as well. Uh, the good thing about Tommy is that it, we didn't have that much time, and I think in some cases that's a huge advantage. You know, Townsend and I started working in November, and we were in rehearsal in May. So there was not much time to second guess ourselves. We had to, we basically fired ourselves out of a cannon, and um, that I think turned in, turned out to be a great advantage. I think if we'd stopped to think about you know, I, I think we would have really you know institutionalized ourselves. <laughs> <clears throat> How about on Big River with Heidi? Well, uh, Heidi and Rocco were married, right. and Rocco actually commissioned Bill. How this is, gets even more incestuous. Uh, Rocco had put Bill Houtman and Roger Miller, who was a he was a huge fan of Rogers from childhood. He kind of put the three of us together, and you know I'd been working a lot with Heidi. She just done we just done Romeo and Juliet together, so it was always kind of understood that Heidi would be you know the designer. It was just a kind of natural uh, process. Um, Heidi's wonderfully uh, gifted, particularly when it comes to what I would call the master stroke. Heidi's very good at, you know, having uh, the sort of the idea that's the large metaphor, uh, and uh, that's that's her great talent as a, a designer. I would say our known is much more of a. a, a he, he's also very capable in that way, but I would I think of him more as being someone who, scene to scene, can really tell a story with a great sense of detail and. He's a good person for me to collaborate with when there's a lot of detail involved. Um, so Heidi, one of Heidi's great contributions to a Big River was the notion of the river coming at us, that somehow we would be, uh, and this idea of the river disappearing in forced perspective. Um, it, it took a while, and I believe it was my contribution that the scenes would come to the river rather than being played in different Places across the stage, so that was a real collaboration as well. Uh, I believe the sepia tone thing came from 
uh, Heidi and, and Patricia McGordy, the costume designer, when we were looking for a color palette, another area where Heidi's very, very strong. But you know, it's like any, any kind of creative process when you go back and you try to say that this person came up with this and you know, I, I never really completely trust it. I, I never completely trust that process. I, I wonder how much I misremember or how much I'm willing to blame others for <laughs> the bad ideas and take credit for the good ones. Uh, well, it's a collaboration, so everybody's... Yeah, it's messier playing. than people think. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's much messier than people think. And you know, you can always tell, with, often with critics, I think they really don't get that. Mm. You know, that there's a, you know, the critics that have a checklist, and so they go acting and design, costume design, lighting design. And I think, they, I think there are people who honestly believe that the lighting designer is responsible for the lighting. And, you know, and it's just not true. It's, it's, you know, the lighting designer, maybe the director came along and said, this is going to be all colored light. You know, we're not going to have any white, you know. Now, the lighting designer's got, you know, let's say this is a really bad idea. You know, it's like, you know, Coriolanus or something, and only strong primary colors, you know, 50s colors. This, is, this would be the bad thing. I see a lot of candy apple red. I see a lot of, um, you know, or, you know, or worse, 60s colors, avocado, burnt orange. You know, these are the colors we're dealing with in this Coriolanus. And the poor lighting designer is crucified. And basically, you know, the designer's decision was whether or not to quit or not. <laughs> no. And maybe the lighting designer, you know, maybe Coriolanus is his lover. And, you know, he's, uh, he's there stuck in, you know, uh, wherever it is in, in Hamilton, Ontario, you know, at this theater. And he's got to kind of stay and he's got to pay the rent and, and so on. And he gets this scathing review for the hideous colors in Cori Coriolanus. Um, you know, and we all know that, that it just doesn't, I wish it worked that way. Or I, I wish it was that simple. But it really is a collaborative art form. And, you know, I think we only have directors uh, really because of, of time, it seems to me, mainly because of time. And, and I, I don't say that and, and believe it entirely. I think the visual side of the theater has is, is gotten stronger and stronger uh, over the last few decades. And I think... Uh, directors are important in that regard as well. But I, I don't know if you feel this, but for a long time I used to say to students, let's not forget that you know only you know 150 years ago we didn't exist. Um, you know the theater managed to muddle along without us quite nicely for 2,400 years, and you know given enough time, you know a gifted group of people will kind of figure out you know together what they're up to, and given enough time and enough practice and enough you know, uh, you, know uh, uh, you know, test runs and uh, so on, they'll, they'll probably eventually, if they're talented, come up with a coherent, you know, vision. Uh, so I think it's always important to remember that even if you're the greatest director with the strongest vision, you know, in the history of the theater, you're still involved in a collaborative art form, and it's still going to be about uh, giving birth to ideas as a company. I, uh, Joanne Acolytis used to call a, I thought this was good, he called a director, the, the director an aesthetic general, which I thought was really a kind of a good, mm -hmm. a good as good as a description as you know, I can come up with. How about working with actors? I know you said there's no recipe and there's no one way of doing it, and each project has its own uh, needs and, you know, right. forces its own kind of process, but is there anything that could be considered a, a machina style or a machina of approach? Well, first of all, I, I want to say about style. Uh, 
I'm sure I have a reputation. <laughs> or I, I fear I have a reputation. It, probably like most of us, you know, mainly based on negative things that I do. Uh, you know, I don't, I really believe that for me style, and this is not true for everyone and I don't claim it should be, but for me style is a response to content and, and the subject matter at hand. Mm -hmm. And in other words, I, I'm much more interested in a style developing based on the universe that I'm entering and the entering with a company of actors and a writer and so on. And I'm suspicious of myself when when I when I feel like I'm 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 starting to kind of get something down, and you know that I I, I start I start to get nervous when I feel like I'm I'm uh, what's the word that 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 I'm imposing a style or that 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 I'm approaching something that feels very familiar and comfortable and so on. Um, so I, I, I really do try to, uh, uh, you know, let style be a response to, to, to something else. Um, however, I think with actors, there are things, I, there are principles I believe in. And one is that I, I absolutely do believe in talking to actors technically. In other words, I, I, or at least for the most part. That isn't to say that I have some kind of vocabulary already developed. Again, I think with actors, if you develop a vocabulary in rehearsal, you, you stand a better chance of communicating honestly and precisely with those people. Because if you start flashing around, even phrases that we think we know, like if you start talking to actors about interaction, you'll find in any you know, dozen actors, you'll probably find a dozen different interpretations of what that means. So I, because actors are stuck inside these remarkable instruments of theirs, you know, the human body and soul, uh, I think it's really important to try to be articulate and to try to talk to them about about the work they're doing and and and, uh, and to try to be clear and and in other words I, I I'm not sort of of the school where I kind of say more or less what I want and leave them to it. Um, I, I'm also not of the school where I tend to dig around inside somebody's psyche. I'm not really interested in the personal experience that they're applying. You know, I'm not really interested in their, you know, molesting, you know, uh, alcoholic uncle, you know what I mean, Who, who's basically managing to drag a particular speech out of them. Um, so I, 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 I kind of leave, uh, I, I kind of leave the personal stuff alone. On the other hand, I do try to talk about, you know, and that might be, uh, uh, I, I work a lot with, I, I do believe that actors' senses are extremely important to them most of the time, and maybe that's the, for me, the sort of basic um, equipment for an actor. That, that those, those are the basic tools, it seems to me. Uh, so I'll, I'll work a lot with, with uh, images and, and, um, uh, and, 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 and talk to them about what, what, what I feel is going on in a, in a, in a particular moment or, or a, a sequence or scene. Um, so, so I think that's the one thing that may, but, but I think that that can be tremendously different if it's working on, you know, with you know on Pap Finn than working on I don't know the you know the the Scottish King. Mm. You know, they, that, that can be a very different um, uh, journey, right. and uh, <clears throat> and I don't necessarily expect one journey to apply uh, to the next. What would you say are the most satisfying projects for you to work on artistically, and, and what made them satisfying? 
Well, I would say the most satisfying project I've worked on as a director uh, uh, is one that I, I, I think at the time this would, I would have been, I would have not guessed this at the time. Uh, and it's a dangerous question because it's a question that can really get one to go on and on, and I'll, I'll, I won't go on and on. Um, the third season, the, play, the Playhouse, the third season of the Playhouse, the Playhouse had just begun to kind of define itself. And I think it was clear to us at the time that this notion of it being a, some kind of little laboratory, uh, you know, was, was, was really quite clear. And it was a place where various uh, artists from different uh, sides of the American theater were congregating uh, in the summer. It's still very, quite a short season to do you know, various kinds of work together. And, and there was a certain amount of cross-pollination going on. Uh, you know, unlikely collaborations were beginning to happen, which, and I can't say that was exactly by design, but the second it happens, of course, it major, you know, immediately got, you know, figured into the mandate. Uh, but, you know, if you think of the 80s, it was the end of about 30 years of experimentation and various uh, areas of the American theater, and they seemed to be, on, in some small way, to be coming together you know, uh, however briefly in La Jolla. And uh, when I first went to California, they said to me, there were a lot of rules. Uh, one of the rules was we weren't supposed to do Shakespeare because the Old Globe did Shakespeare. And that was supposed to be off, you know, that was their thing. And I always, you know, I guess growing up near Stratford and all that, the idea of a theater not doing Shakespeare was just like completely unacceptable to me. Uh, it, it seemed to me, you know, that that's... That's the, the great measuring stick. And, you know, if you're an actor, you, you measure yourself to some extent by, by playing the great roles. And, 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 and old Bill, you know, came up with a good number of them. So you've got to kind of do Shakespeare for, if, uh, if no, for no other reason than that. Um, but the other thing they said is you can't do Chekhov. The thing was, it was, the rule was Chekhov does not play in Southern California. <laughs> so I, I heard this and I took this in and... And I immediately thought to myself, just kind of I wrote down, check off by season three. You know? <laughs> and uh, so we decided now, when we went out to La Jolla, uh, there, uh, I was looking for the logo. And uh, uh, just a little bit of background. You know, Doug Johnson, who does our graphics for the Dodgers, uh, we always have this thing where, where uh, you know, they all hated the name Dodgers, for example. We had to get it in for an NEA grant deadline. We had to come up with a name. And nobody could come up with anything they liked better, so they were kind of stuck with it, which was my name. And uh, so I liked to, I was trying to do this to him with the, the playhouse. I was trying to find the right kind of uh, uh, image for the logo. And uh, they're showing me the beautiful beaches out there, and there's these clunky old birds, which I'd never seen in my life before. And somebody said oh, they were uh, almost extinct, mm -hmm. the pelican. And, uh, but they're coming back now. And I thought, well, that's what this the kind of theater we're going to do. You know, it's almost extinct, too, but... It's going to come back, and you know. Uh, so I, I told him the logo's got to be the pelican. Now, if you remember, you know the Moscow Art Theater's logo is the seagull, mm -hmm. and so but it's this very graceful kind of you know logo. And so I managed to persuade Doug that this had after he, he tried sixteen other logos and couldn't come up with any, anything better, and came up with the pelican. Uh, now, I would, if you ever go to the playhouse, you'll never see a white pelican. You'll only ever, there will be ugly brown kind. And, uh, you know, not the sort of beautiful pelicans like the ones you see in the logo. But Doug had never been to California at that time and just looked up, you know, pelicans in a book and found one. And so it's the 
the Florida pelican that actually graces the little <laughs> plants. But anyway, there were everything was sort of pointing us at this play, the seagull. You know, the art theater had started with the seagull, and and uh, you know we wanted to do Chekhov, and and it was it was smaller than the other Chekhov, so it was more affordable. You'll know if you're involved with running a theater that this is, of course, you know we look for small character dramas of you know, serious social content. Um, Anyway, so The Seagull became the play. Well, the thing is, when we started working on it, it was this wonderful, wonderful discovery. Like one of those, you know, and I truly do believe this was a great discovery about a play that maybe, it, it, it's probably not unique, but it, it's unique, it was unique in our experience. And that was that, you know, Chekhov wrote this play that, that had a great, that has one, that has many great perceptions, but one truly great perception about human beings in modern times. And that is that we're defined and trapped by genre. You know, it's, it, it's in the seagull, you have Konstantin Gavrilovich, who's a symbolist and is totally married to that genre. He's defined by that genre. It's how he defines himself. I don't know if you know this. It was very fashionable for the, the symbolists to, to commit suicide, uh, which was considered one of the few, you know, uh, noble acts that a, that a, that a human being could could uh, could kind of create, and also the one bit of literature that they had any respect for was Hamlet, and it wasn't the whole play; it was simply the "to be or not to be" speech. Uh, that was just that part of the play that was of interest to the symbolists, and uh, and then you get you know Arkadna, who's a particular actress of a particular period, you know the melodrama, not of the of the. Uh, 1870s, but of the 1880s, very, very specific period of drama, uh, predating the art theater. And then you get Shamarayev, who, who, who believes, remember, the, the stolen male. He wants her always to do you know, dr melodrama from the 1870s, a different period, the period that defined his genre. You know, you have uh, um, a, a Trigorin being a particular kind of you know, short story you know, writer, Her, her Gorn short story as a character in order to achieve what she wants, which is to be a great actress of tragedy. She actually has to, you know, uh, become a tragic figure in one of his short stories in order to, you know, find her art. And it goes through the whole play. And what he managed to create was this microcosm for an art scene. And in this art scene, everyone falls in love with the wrong person. So you get Masha, the existentialist, falling in love with the symbolist, who falls in love with the actress who wants to play tragedy. And none of them can communicate. You know, there are whole conversations at you know, complete cross-purposes because they're coming so completely from a worldview defined by art that they're incapable of understanding the voice of the person who's speaking to them. And it's much like what we observe now all the time. Put somebody who loves big band together with, or someone who's defined by, you know, been defined by Big Band, like my father, with someone who's defined by The Clash and New Wave and The Sex Pistols, and put them beside somebody who's defined by hip-hop, and you'll have a very, you know, difficult time getting them to communicate. And the great thing about this discovery was, of course, it was the lives we were leading at this theater. It was all, Bill Irwin played Medvedenko. Uh, who, remember, always wants uh, somebody to write a teacher, 
doesn't actually have a genre, has ended up being a teacher, which I think makes a certain amount of sense, and, but always wants to you know, appear as a character, you know, wants, wants somebody to write about um, a, a, a teacher. But it was one of those rare times in your life, I suppose. And normally I'm allergic to the idea of you know, artists you know, talking about art or, you know what I mean, or plays about artists. Normally I, I think if we can't write about or talk about the world we live in, uh, it means that we're suffering from, you know, uh, uh, you know, complete or we've come completely insulated. But this was genuinely a case where I felt the actors on stage were living out their own lives as well as the lives of the characters, and that really it was echoing this little microcosm for an art scene that had become uh, the La Jolla Playhouse. And and that that in in a nutshell is the most meaningful experience I've ever had. As a director, and ironically, you know, this was the same year as, you know, Big River and a, a couple, you know, projects that had a lot, got a lot more hoopla and that, you know, attention, and they weren't, you know, frankly, nearly as meaningful to me personally. You had shows that um, played in the nonprofit sector and then moved to the commercial arena, like a couple that we've mentioned. Right. What, what's the difference for you working in those two different arenas? Is there a difference? No, the basic difference is in the not-for-profit. Uh, uh, theater. It's my belief, I, I'm really mainly interested in putting people to work, uh, seeing uh, people work. I would measure our success based on the number of great artists who are um, working and, and, and creating art, hopefully, or create, mm -hmm. at least attempting to, or failing, attempting to and failing to. In other words, this may sound outrageous, but in a sense it's by the dollars one is spending. Not it's it's by the, the 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 you know in other words if if the, if somebody told me the La Jolla Playhouse made three million dollars last year I think my basic response would be so what you know that's that's great but you know it's it's not a bank you know its mission is to create you know uh, you know to hopefully create works of art and uh, to create works of theater art and in the in the in the commercial theater if you're going to participate in the commercial theater I think it's important to recognize that you have a responsibility to repay someone's investment. And the bottom line, ultimately, on some level, is, um, uh, uh, is, 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 is returning the, uh, that investment. Is it the concern of the artist, though, or of the producer? Yeah, I think if you're going to, and I think it's a concern of both. I think if you're going to enter into that, I think you have to try, at least, to be somewhat responsible uh, about that. I think, I, think it's a, I, I think it's everyone's responsibility on some level. It's not, you know, I think it is a different beast. Uh, I wish all theater uh, were, were, uh, were not-for-profit theater. I mean, I wish it could be. I wish, I wish we could do musicals, um, you know, in, in that sector, and uh, it would be great. But I don't think it works. I don't think, it, uh, I don't think it's likely to work that way. So using that measure of success that you just mentioned, um theater, measure the success of the theater being how many artists are doing their work or putting their work out there, how would you then measure the success of your work at the Playhouse? Uh, you know, I think at the moment the, the Playhouse looks like it's weathered, I think, quite a difficult period. You know, the recession in California has been um, really brutal on the arts. It's been brutal everywhere. I would say that the Playhouse is going through uh, a, a very good period, a really strong period. I think 
we're beginning to go through a really exciting period. Um, over looking back, and, and so I feel, you know, confident about this transition that's happening. I think the new, the incoming artistic director is going to hopefully take over an institution that's capable of putting a lot of artists to work. And um, I believe that that person will inherit an institution or will take over an institution that uh, has an audience that, that, that that's, you know, that, that I think really will, is, is expects to be challenged, which I think is perhaps the most important thing. You know, if I look back over the last decade, I would have to say it's, it's a, a mixed bag in terms of, of, of what I consider, you know, the success. I, I, I would say that, that uh, we, we continued to build very, very steadily as an institution for a lot of years. I, I think the last couple of years have been tough, to be honest. Um, and uh, there, are, there are times when I've been sort of less happy with, uh, with, with the Playhouse as a home, as a sandbox for artists that I believe in over the last three or four seasons. You know, and it's, it's amazing. It, I, I remember the moment it all sort of turned. We had just, we struggled for a long time to build a second building to create a stronger fiscal foundation for the institution, uh, basically to help us uh, 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 simply uh, uh, produce more work, which, which was our way of becoming uh, more kind of, uh, t gaining a more sensible financial plan. And um, halfway through the season, we finally built this theater. This is now in 1991, and it's named after our mentor who just died. He was 102. Uh, his name was Amanda Weiss. We just built this theater. Everything's looking fabulous. You know, we're, we're sold out. We opened with this Lee Blessing play called Fortinbras. Everything's looking fantastic. And the, I can feel the recession kick in. You know, the week that that happened, um, uh, you could see the difference in single ticket sales. I mean, it was just... It was as if somebody, you know, you know, drawn a line. And, you know, the recession was very late to kick in out there. It, it had been happening here for a couple of years. But it happened very violently and very suddenly. And, you know, these arts institutions are fragile things. So it was much more difficult to spend money on putting artists to work, which, again, I think is the real, uh, you know, job and the real goal. We're going to get to some questions from the folks in the audience. I have Esther asked one more. Um, you've said that theater is a measure of the spiritual health of the nation. And I was just wondering. Did I really say that? Yeah, you said that. You said that on. Uh, Good. <laughs> Recently. On, on Friday. <laughs> Good, there you go. <laughs> and uh, so, according to what's going on in the theater today, what does that say about the spiritual health of this nation? Um, it's, uh, it's not great, is it? Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think that I think that the the the, the nation uh, is going through uh, difficult times, and I think that's reflected in in the arts. Um, I think there were a number of years when the the nation was, uh, you know, I, I think I think if you look back, if you trace the expansion of of um, of the arts in this country. Uh, starting in the, the 50s and 60s, you know, in the sort of post-war period, I think to some extent it parallels civil rights, women's rights. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think there, there was a time when, when um, well, I think you can draw a clear parallel between what I would consider social 
and, and political advancement and advancement in the uh, the arts, particularly the not-for-profit arts. And I think that that you know that 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 it's been a bumpier ride uh, of late. You know, I think there was a, and I think it probably even the the decline in many ways probably predated the uh, the Reagan Bush years. Even though it's it's I'm happy to let you know put as much of it at, at, at their doorstep as possible. <laughs> I think in, in, in fairness, it was, it was clearly, there was decay in the arts and decay in the, in the support system from the arts in the 70s. Uh, and it was, it was, you know, the writing was on the wall uh, then. And I, I mean, one, one can overstate this, and I don't think it's as simply, I don't think it's as simple as creating government programs, and this is going to, you know, like uh, you know, uh, lift the spirits of the nation. I, I really don't believe it's it's that simple. At, on the other hand, I think it's a great tragedy that support for the arts has not kept pace with need with the with the with the with, with the need. And you know, I think it's a great shame that the National Endowment, which was started as an experiment in the '60s, has not gone on to be more than an experiment. I mean, clearly the experiment worked. You know, suddenly there was. There was art in every nook and cranny of the nation, and tr sadly enough, it's been kept at that, uh, you know, particular level, and, and never, never uh, kind of gone. Uh, it's never gone beyond that, and I think we've suffered. I think, I think it's, uh, I think our education uh, system suffers uh, because uh, uh, we don't pay more attention to uh, the arts, and because our young people don't have more access to them. Um, I think there was a there was a time when. You know, I think it was perhaps widely understood that education involved uh, more than just getting, uh, you know, uh, a practical, uh, you know, foundation for a career. You know, that it meant, uh, you know, the liberal arts and and, and sciences uh, involved, you know, learning about about life and learning how to learn and learning how to appreciate and so on. And uh, I think the the fact that that, that uh, the arts have, have not continued to flourish is, is perhaps connected with that. On the other hand, I think it's very easy to whine and moan about all this. I, I, I've been encouraged, uh, I don't know if anybody else shares this, but I've been somewhat encouraged uh, lately. Uh, uh, it, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm sort of amazed that I expected more institutions to collapse during this period. Uh, we've lost some very valuable invaluable institutions and and those are of course homes for artists but I must say it's it's you know there's been this tenacious uh, I think will to hang on and and uh, and survive and weather out the storm and and I, I think we could be we could uh, begin to see uh, a bluer skies in, in the in the coming years I really do I I, I, I hope I hope I'm yes, right yes, yeah, but I'm sort of an eternal optimist, or I wouldn't do this anyway. <laughs> right, I think we all have to be. Okay, does anybody uh, have any questions there? Uh, Alan? Great question, David. Uh, I would like to uh, know about your choreography from Tommy. I, mean, I felt it was kind of a, a seamless scene that went on uh, for most of the show. Sure. And I'd just like to hear some great accolades about it. Uh, gee. <laughs> Oh, you represent them. Okay. Um, well, first of all, we, we we do work very very closely together, and 
he, he's, you know, we, we do tend to stage simultaneously. And I think that accounts to some extent for the seamlessness. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's, I think, a real, uh, we've worked together a lot, and I think we're both very comfortable, we're, we're comfortable with being in the room together, and we try to make people uh, in the room comfortable with us. Sometimes this is tricky, because you, uh, understandably, from time to time, you give contradictory notes and directions, not from time to time, all the time. And, um, and my answer is always just take the advice of the last person who's spoken to you, uh, to the actors, which sometimes can lead to anarchy. Uh, but you know, I, I think we come, I think one of the reasons, I, I like to think we work well together. Uh, and I, I think uh, one of the reasons for that is that, that we come from very, very different places. You know, what Wayne knows how to do um, is, is stuff that I don't know how to do. You know, I, if you've ever seen me dance, you know, if I started dancing right now, I'd probably clear the room in 15 seconds. Um, that would be really, it would be far too embarrassing for all of us. It would, we'd spoil our dinner. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a good, I hope, sense of stage movement, but that's not my tradition, you know. And Wayne comes very much from, from uh, you know, the tradition of, of uh, Fosse and, and, uh, and certainly of Michael Bennett. So he, he really brings, you know, uh, a, a tradition uh, to the work that we do together that, that, that I don't bring to the work. Again, I think I probably come more from the, uh, you know, I think Stratford, Canada probably has more of an influence on my, my staging than, than as much as I admired Bob Fosse than, than Bob Fosse uh, uh, does. So, I, I, and I, I think for that reason we're not terribly competitive either. I think there's, you know, I have, I have great respect for what he can do because, um, you know, I can't do that. I, uh, and I think I think the the, the office. I like. To, I hope the opposite is true. I guess it must be. Mind you, the director generally brings the choreographer in, so they they have to put up with us. Uh, so maybe that's not what he really thinks, but I suspect it is. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I also you know Wayne's very very much uh, works with his body and communicates with his body, and uh, I tend to be more verbal. So I th I, I think it's also kind of good for the actors. I, uh, we, we approach the, the stage from very different directions and different points of view. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's been a good partnership. And, and I, I think we've now done uh, four uh, together. And, um, you know, I, I, hope we, I hope we do uh, many, many more. It took me a while, too. It's not easy finding a, a, a good good collaborations there. You know, it's not. It's, it takes it takes some work, and you know, I guess part of what I'd like to do with with dance and movement on stage is 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 do kind of more or less what what I, I've tried to do with music, and that is to embrace genres and styles of music that aren't necessarily normally associated with you know with uh, you know music theater. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. For example, I got to work with. You know, Cannonball, uh, Adderley's music, Nat Adderley, and, and I worked with Diane McIntyre, the, the choreographer, and I, I, that was working with a, you know, the kind of jazz that we don't normally hear on stage. And I would like to, I would like to find ways to do that um, more and more with musical staging and with dance as we go on into this decade. Um, 
I think, I think it's good to have a combination of, of tradition and also I think in the theater we tend to be kind of insulated and we need to be kind of opening up uh, uh, ourselves to, uh, you know, to the, to the other arts and, and, and uh, the other influences around us. So I hope that's one of the things that uh, we'll be able to do. Okay. Sure. Bob? Yeah, um, I'd like to know the pressure of being an artistic director besides obviously the aesthetic decision you have to make. And you said the responsibility to the people and the investors. How much of that pressure came to bear on various projects? And is that in any way one of the reasons why you're stepping down? Because, you know, what happens after a while, the pressure becomes so great from something different. Right. No, I, I think that's probably a, a, a good good point, and I think that's that's that's. Uh, I mean, I I, I I guess I believe that that after a while. Well, a, anything's a burnout after a while, isn't it? Really, but I think when you're when you're trying to well, an artistic director to a large extent is a producer, you know, and it's really the the side of producing that pertains directly to the art. And, you know, there was a time when I think artistic directors thought their job was to pick a bunch of plays and find hirelings to do the plays. I don't really believe that's my job. You know, I believe my, it's my job to, to find artists who I really believe in and find ways to support them. And, and as, as often as not, most of the time, they pick the projects. And that's my job to sort of shepherd them along. And so on. You know, to be honest, it, it's it's that's very very time consuming. And you know, I spend I've spent a lot of my life the last ten years in previews with other directors, uh, you know, or at first readings with other directors uh, in auditions, or you know, and and when you have, I suppose, serious ambitions as a director as well, it, it can get to be a bit of an overload. I mean, it's been rare for me to be able to direct more than two projects in the course of a year. Um, and there are times when, I, w when I, w I would have liked to have been able to do that. You know, I guess I'm really at a point where I'm, uh, it, it, the other point of part of, of that is, is, of course, not true. Because I'll still be, if I'm doing, you know, um, you know Tommy in, in, in uh, you know, London, I'm still going to be responsible to the investors on that. So that'll carry on. And as a freelancer, um, uh, uh, you know, as, as a as a you know, director out in the world, you know, you're always going to be responsible uh, to somebody. You know, I like to think that if I'm working for a not-for-profit theater, uh, even if I'm doing, you know, God knows, I don't know, uh, you know, my my if somebody lets me do, you know, my long dreamt up version of I'm kidding here, but you know, 120 days of Sodom. You know, I hope I'm not going to leave the you know the theater in ashes when you know I leave the way some directors have. Uh, perhaps left in my institution. Uh, I hope it'll make me more sensitive to the fact that there are real you know, problems and, and uh, you know, the, the real responsibilities in not-for-profit theaters. So, so don't misunderstand me there. But, um, but, but you know, the part of directing that I, or of being an artistic director that I, that I think I finally, I, I guess I reached a point in my life where I said, I, there's only so much I can do. How am I going to spend my time? What is it I really want to do? And first and foremost, it's to you know make plays, or you know because I don't think of myself just as a director. That's one of the roles I play as a sort of playmaker, you know. And maybe sometimes I, I get to 
composed the music and in some ways I've gotten to, to write them too. And I'm a lousy actor, but I've even managed to do that once in a while. I like to make films too. So that's, I'd like to be a filmmaker and I'd like to put my time into that. And what do I feel like I don't have time for? Well, it's basically supervising an administrative staff or a production staff, you know, which is really the job. You know, you've got people who are working generally for lousy wages, uh, doing work that, that may be grueling and really difficult and, and painful and maybe at really lousy wages because they believe in the art that's happening on the stages and they deserve leadership that's there for them. And I guess I'm just at the point in my life where I can't be there for them and be completely true to myself, you know, and, and, uh, and it's oddly enough, you know, people think, the first people, people, thing people say to me is, oh, you won't have to fundraise anymore. And ironically, of course, that's not true at all. Uh, first of all, I'm going to stay connected with the theater. I'm director in residence. And I'm absolutely convinced, I'm sure that I will be, you know, singing for my supper the way I have for 10 years and singing for the supper of of the theater and, and the rest of us who work there. You know, that I'm going to have to do my dog and pony show and my turn's going to come up to talk to the Rotarians and, you know, I'm going to be at this lunch with, you know, you know Mrs. Whipple about, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the planned gift we uh, have in mind for her, the sponsorship of Production X. And ironically, it's not the fundraising. You know, it's, it's I can't say, and nobody enjoys fundraising. It's begging is not... You know, and, and it's really not that different than being out in this, well it is, but it's, it's, it's obviously easier than that. But it's, it's, it, it's in some ways, it, it is, it is in, it, you know, you often feel like you're in that position. It, it's a humbling experience now, often to do it. But, but I have come to, to believe that it's a privilege on some level to ask for money for things you believe in. And I'm not talking now about investments in, you know, musical acts, because that's a different thing. And, and you know that's 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 a different thing entirely. But I think when you're asking for funding for a theater, that that really is some kind of privilege if you believe in the work. And I will continue uh, to do that. So it's really the staff supervision and and I think the shepherding other directors' work uh, that that I finally also you know after years and years of that, sometimes you have to be the jerk. You know you have to be the jerk who comes along and says, I don't know how to tell you this, but that performance isn't landing. You know what I mean? And, you know, oftentimes this is a director that may, you may admire, may look up to as a director. And that, that can get to be sort of a grueling job. You know, and I really believe the way to do this is with team leadership. And, you know, I think that's the way the really large companies like the RSC, even though somebody's CEO, basically the larger companies have to run that way. You know, one person couldn't possibly supervise the the art of an entire institution, you know, when it's that size. And, you know, it would be great if we could run our theaters, um, you know, uh, in, in, par in, in partnerships that were more visible. I mean, they're all run with partnerships of one kind or another anyway. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is to some extent selfish. You know, I want, I want, there's stuff I really want to do. And, you know, you know when you make a film, it's, it's, it's 12 months of your life if you're lucky, you know. Even if principal, you know, principal photography is only eight, nine, seven weeks, you're in pre-production for at least that amount of time. You know, you're in post-production for a lot longer than that, um, and you can't do that and be true to, you know, an institution at the same time. So that that's really it. That brings up something when you talk about wanting to do a film, which I think is great. 
do you find that there's a, a drain on the talent in the theater for people working in, in other media? And do you think that? Well, I think there's both a, a, a drain, and, and, and if by that you mean that there are people who would prefer to be doing stage productions that are forced to do other things, I think that's absolutely true. Right. And, I, and, I wish, and I think there should be more support from the theater, and specifically, I think there should be more support for the theater, not only from corporations and individuals and foundations, all of whom can afford to pay more attention to the theater in this country, but I, uh, and from government, God knows, which, which pays pittance compared to any other you know, Western country, particularly from my native Canada. You know, the Manitoba Theater Center probably gets 40% of its funding through government. The La Jolla Playhouse is lucky if we get 3% of our funding uh, from government. So they can certainly pay their, pay their share. But in this country, <clears throat> it's the film industry, the motion picture industry, and television could be doing far more to support live performance and should be doing far more because they reap uh, the most direct benefits. You know that 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 it's absolutely a, you know my, my I have you know I'm connected with a training program at uh, at uh, UC San Diego and you know we turn out two strong directors a year and I'm sure of the directors I've you know worked with over the last decade a number of them are going to end up in television. I have one of them observing, you know, right now he's an extremely well trained young director, and I'm sure situation comedies are just like, you know, they're, they can't wait to get their grubby little mitts on them. Um, so, so I believe they should be doing far more to make it possible for people who do want to work in the theater to work there, and also to help us pay wages that would be at least, uh, you know, at least have people, you know, cash uh, the checks while retaining their self-respect. You know, we've fallen so far behind what could be considered a normal working wage, uh, you know, in the theater that it really is a disgrace. And I tell you, that's hard to be a part of, you know, after a while, too. You, you feel like you really are, you know, it does start to feel corrupt after a while when you're paying uh, people wages that, 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 you know, can't support them. You know that. You're legislating the fact that that person's going to have to go out and subsidize uh, you know, uh, themselves. And that's great if they can get television work or if they have, you know, a family situation that can support them. But many, many people don't. And they're often the people who need to be working, that we need to be working uh, on stage the, the, the most. So I think motion pictures and, and, and television, the industries could be doing far more. But there's another side to this. And theater is the mother of these other mediums. But artists, you know, as... Uh, you know, uh, have, have struggled, you know, as a, uh, you know, for, for many, many centuries uh, to, for, to have access to mechanical reproduction so we can reach larger and larger groups of people. You know, and that impulse is non-elitist and extremely healthy. Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, the theater is mother, but it's important once in a while to get away from mother. And you know to to go and and so I, I think the film industry could gain uh, and both both television and motion pictures could uh, could uh, can gain tremendously for from having you know theater artists you know work in those mediums and and I don't so I don't think it's just a drain uh, I wish they were having more effect you know James Lapine who's a very gifted director uh, directed uh, you know his first film was a marvelous. Um, film, you know, impromptu, with a bunch of seasoned actors, 
you know, from the theater. And, you know, maybe it wasn't Bergman, but it was a hell of a lot closer to Bergman than most of what we see coming out of American filmmakers. And I think there's a case in point where, where, uh, where, where you know, somebody like James is really having a, a real positive influence on uh, the American film. I, I'm not sure his studio effort was as, as successful, but that shouldn't surprise any of us, should it? So, um, so I think question? it's okay. I don't. Th I think it's easy to get prejudiced. Good films are good films. You know, good you, good television is good television. I want it. All, I want to. You know, yeah, see it. And I. And if I can help make some, that'd be great too. Good. Uh, yes. You know, I'm I'm gonna you you ask me something. I'm gonna be we can all be frank, right? We're working in the same area. That I I couldn't even watch it. I I personally. Now I'm sure there are people who loved it. I I was just I just hated it. I I, I didn't like the performance. I thought it was I thought it was uh, uh, over the top and. And it was kind of everything I hate about uh, musicals when people film them. You know, that the, it's somehow they're acting in, 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 a, in a style that pertains to, you know, you know, theater exists on the shifting sands of time. And if we actually went back and looked at performances from the 50s that were legitimate theater performances at the time and that we would have loved then, we would be appalled because, you know, time marches on in the theater. That's what's great about what we do. But somehow... I, 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 so that, so I would be horrified if that creates a tradition <laughs> on television, because I, I really did, and I loved that. I thought Tyne Daly was so really great in the role, and and now that I've seen the other performance, I frankly, in retrospect, think she was even better than I understood at the time, because it was a truthful sort of understated. Um, it wasn't. Uh, you know, and I think she's very talented. Don't get me wrong, but but, but because I, I happen to know, uh, you know, other uh, folks have worked with her when, when she's been acting, and I think that's a tendency. Bet has, I mean, and uh, you know, and I thought I thought I thought that was kind of over the top. Uh, I think there's, a, I think it's hard to do. I think television's its own kind of medium. You know, the television I really loved. I don't know if you remember the Avengers. Years ago, or or the prisoner, you know, when it was all kind of surreal, and there was, you know, the Avengers was made for next to nothing. There was never anybody on the streets. I don't know if you remember that, and that's because they couldn't afford extras. So the streets were always kind of vacant, and you know, and 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 you know, television has its great strength, just as film does. And and I think to do musicals on television, you know, on that tiny little box, it's hard. It's hard to do musicals on film. Period. Now, everything on film is is created to some extent with television in mind. We're very used to close-ups now. And it's not really, it's just not that attractive when you're staring down somebody's throat, you know, in the middle of a solo. They're like, you know, and, and the camera's here. In those musicals of the 40s, the, 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 uh, the, they're basically, the, the screen basically became a proscenium arch. And if you look at those old musicals, most of the musical staging is done the way you know, in a kind of traditional fashion, it was basically putting the camera, you know, a lot of work with a fixed camera and letting the performers, you know, uh, kind of do their thing. And it's very hard to, to uh, I think, uh, it's, it's very hard in this day and age to work with uh, uh, 
that kind of aesthetic because a, a camera means other things to us. We expect, you know, we've developed a different relationship with it and we expect different things from it. I think what will really be exciting is when someone breaks through, and I'm talking now about motion pictures, forgive me for switching over, but I think, I think if, if we can find ways to deal with music um, uh, in, in performance, you know, to get back to, uh, you know, uh, uh, live action, uh, you know, musicals, I, I think whoever breaks through that form is, is going to lead us into a very, very exciting world. Uh, you know, I, I think MTV, even though it's for very short attention spans, um, I think it, I think it has sort of liberated the, the notion of, of what you can do with with excuse me song and television and so I would be far more excited about seeing where that kind of leads rather than necessarily you know taking uh, and and I think it's led us by the way to some interesting areas in dance too and I think MTV only started in what does anybody know it's re yeah I think it's later than eighty one I think I think it's like mid eighties. And so it's not even a decade. I, I believe it's not even a full decade old. Um, and if you, you know, I, and, and God knows, and I'm not. There's there's a lot I don't like about MTV too. Please, but you know, it, I think it, I think it, it does kind of give us a taste of of what might happen if really creative people, you know, occupy the medium. And and if it's not just like what happens in Hollywood, where where a bunch of businessmen claim to be filmmakers. Sure. There still is the, you know, the fact that it costs nothing to watch it on television. Right. Seeing a $65 ticket, I see a $65 ticket, I'm on Broadway, so I still would say personal feelings aside, though, what do you think this type of motivation for, for will um, probably hinge upon theater audiences? Do you think it will cause less people then be fooled into thinking they're getting a real, you know, theater experience by watching, uh, you know, uh, Gypsy or or another, you know, musical uh, on the tube. I mean, I think it's a different medium and a different kind of experience. And I do not feel threatened by it. No, I don't. Maybe I should, but I I don't. I don't feel threatened by it. Yeah. Sure. I'm interested with, with such a long theater background, how you prepare to direct a film. You said you might be directing one in Canada. Well, I actually just finished doing, I did, I did four days before the earthquake and four days after. Uh, Touchstone has a discretionary fund now for directors, which, uh, you know, uh, whatever one likes or doesn't like about Disney, this is actually, I think, quite a good idea, which is, uh, you know, uh, they basically have chosen, and they, there are various kinds of projects. They involve screenwriters, and but each executive has, um, a, a, you know, a pot of of, of uh, funds, and they can create uh, projects, you know, with artists that they're interested in bringing uh, into film. And I got to do one of these. Uh, and you know, how you prep, how I prepped is, uh, first of all, um, I did two hundred. It's a twenty-five minute film, and I did two hundred and twenty storyboards. Um, with a, which is a ridiculous number, admittedly. You know, more storyboards than shots. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think 
if, if you're a theater director and you haven't directed film or television, you don't need to be intimidated. It's, it's you know, learning about crossing the access. It takes about, you know, 20 minutes. And the second you're on a film set with a good DP, and they don't even always know. So, you know, the, the, the fact is it's like anything else. It's, it, the thing you have as a, as a director working on stage is the most valuable thing on a film set. And that is an ability to work with actors, to tell a story, you know, to keep, you know, and storytelling is, in fact, your main role, your main function. You know, there is this other person called the director of photography. And uh, now you should get intimately involved in everything they do because you're at their mercy. Uh, and they need, you know, it needs to be a partnership, very much like working with Wayne Salento on staging a musical. You know, you need... Uh, those partnerships, but the bottom line is you're the person who is responsible for the film, and your great strength as a stage director is going to be the s same strength you need to call on as a as a as a filmmaker. So you know, I I, I accept that I know very that, that I'm very new at filmmaking, and I'd never try to uh, let on that I know more than I I do if. If somebody comes up with a term I don't understand, you know, if they mention, let's do this with a split diopter, I say, what's a split diopter? And you know what? They're generally, they're, they're almost, almost to a person eager to tell you, pleased that you've asked, and relieved that you haven't tried to fake your way through the way a lot of people do on a film set. Um, oftentimes, they're used to people who are, are quaking in their boots because they've never had to talk to an actor in their life. And so, you know, I think there's the, the tradition in this country, for a long time there was a real barrier. But, you know, the great tradition in this country is of crossover between, you know, the theater populated Hollywood, uh, you know, created it. And every, you know, every 10 or 15 years it seems to happen over again. It absolutely happened in the 70s, you know, that generation that we, you know, that a chorus line created, the funds from a chorus line created an entire, you know, generation of theater artists. They went off to, to, to Hollywood and reinvented it. And uh, so it's not to be, uh, it's, it's, you, I think you need to have respect for it and you need to be a good student, like you always do as an artist, but you shouldn't be intimidated by it, I don't think. We have time for one more question. Bob? Wow. All right, I have to ask about the film you did. You said it's 25 minutes. Right. Is that the full length of the film? Yeah, and... and what is the part? Obviously, the discretionary fund. What are they going to do with this film? Are they going to put an independent film festival? I mean... Yeah, I think that... If, if it's any good, that's what they'll, they'll do. Um, and is this sort of an audition for a uh, exec or wing of the theater, you know, I, I'd already met with Disney about another project which was sold independent of this. You know, and I don't think it's entirely, in, I don't think it's just uh, philanthropy. I think from their standpoint, they're, they're, they're helping to develop a talent pool. And even if it's a, a director or, an, or a, a writer they're going to be working with, better to have them uh, get their chops together on you know a project that costs you know a film that costs one hundred and twenty thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars or whatever, rather than on a, a you know a, a ten million dollar uh, feature. So I think it's practical from that standpoint. But also I think what's great about this is that you know when I I grew up in Canada where we have something called the National Film Board, where short films are kind of part of what 
what filmmakers uh, are able to do. Now, they aren't able to make features as easily, but that's a legitimate kind of art form uh, up there. And nobody worries too much about what's going to happen to the films. You know, sometimes they may be shown on television. This is, we shot this anamorphic, you know, widescreen. So I think it's unlikely, I hope, that it'll end up on television. I don't want it on television. If it's anywhere, I hope it's in festivals. But I think to some extent they're doing it to see what people can do with short films. And short films are like short stories as opposed to novels. You know, doing a short film well is, is, is in some ways more difficult because you've got four potential moments or five potential moments and you've got to hit every one of them. If you miss one of them, it's going to be this glaring hole in the middle of your picture. Whereas, you know, um, I saw <coughs> uh, a, 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 a Romeo is Bleeding uh, last night by uh, Peter Medak, who's a director I really, really admire. And there's a whole period in the middle of the movie where I snoozed away and just, you know, got completely, like, bored to tears, a 20-minute se section, I still came out of the film thinking it was a pretty good film and having had a good experience and admiring as a, as a filmmaker. That 20-minute gap would have been my entire film. So, you know, you can't... So it's actually a really smart thing to do in terms of teaching people, um, you know, that, that, that every frame counts and you have to be... You know, uh, you know that it's a difficult form. It's not the feature film form. It's 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 a it's a different form. But but it's a good. I think it's a good uh, education. I I, I will in, in closing say I have no intention of being an, a filmmaker. Um, you know, uh, exclusively. I I I can't imagine getting away from mother permanently. Mm. You know, and uh, my hope would be that that one. A thing will inform the other, and I hope it'll it'll help me grow, um, you know, as a as a stage director as well. I hope. Great. Well, this Great. has been terrific. I hope you uh, join me in thanking our guest, Des Mackinac. Again, this is Hal Prince, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members online at ssdc.org. The online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.